0: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Make sure to check out our newest book on understanding viruses. This book is a compilation of interviews of 25 plus top virologists. And the questions I asked uh, made Pretty much all of them say, that's a good question. So there's a lot of speculation, a lot of new information, I believe, that uh, will keep people thinking and experimenting for decades to come. So if you want to get the book, it's not expensive. Go to uh, Amazon.com and type in Finding Genius. So my, my guest today is Yanlin Mao. Uh, she's a group leader at the MRC Laboratory for Molecular Cell Biology at University College of London. So we're going to go into her work. So Yanlin, thank you for coming.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, tell me about your research, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So overall, I'm basically interested in how tissue size and shape is controlled and how we can get this beautiful diversity of animal and plant sizes and shapes in nature, even though actually we're all, you know, at the very basic level built of very similar building blocks. So specifically, my lab is investigating this um, in, from three aspects. One is, you know, how do tissues actually get to the right shape as they are growing and developing? Another is how do they stay in this shape during the lifetime of, of the organism, which is often you know, the longest time period they have to cope with. So how do they actually stay in this shape despite the constant you know fluctuations and perturbations that the environment may be exposing the organism to? And then finally, if they are injured, for example, how do they actually you know, remember their original shape? How do they get back into their correct shape after injury? So basically wound healing or tissue repair processes.
0: In embryogenesis, I've wondered, you know, like, let's say there's 120 billion people that have ever lived, you know, why are, why do they all, I mean, not all of them, but almost all of them seem to have a, you know, one liver, not two. And why is the liver on the, you know, the right side, if they look down and not the left side, and why is the pancreas in opposition? And why are there these shapes? And, you know, what's, what governs all of this? So I'm sure you're looking at the same question.
1: Yeah. For example, you know, how is the heart shaped? You know, how does it, generates shape it's it's morphology and and why is it always you know as you said in different positions so this is all to do with kind of positional information tissue morphology at the individual organ level but also at the kind of whole system you know whole animal level how are these different organs coordinated how do they position themselves as you say correctly in order to presumably carry out coordinate functions right at the whole animal level so i study to be honest less at this kind of animal level coordination what i look at is more individual organs So, for example, we use the fruit fruit fly drosophila as our model tissue and, and the wing specifically as the actual tissue. And so we use the wing as a model tissue to understand, you know, how does the wing get to its correct size, correct shape? Because obviously it's harder to, you know, look into that in humans, although people are starting to look at that now using different um, different methods. Um, right. But so what we know is that and what we're interested in is, for example, of course, you know, all the information is in our genes of, you know, we look like our parents, our kids look like us, but exactly, you know, how do these genes, even if we understand you know, the genes and, and the sequences, how do they actually, you know, generate the proteins, which then drive um, morphogenesis? And to understand that, we really need to understand forces. So, you know, because ultimately to sculpt any tissue or any object, any matter, you know, you have to apply a force to the object, to the matter, to make it move, to make it, you know, change shape. And so it's really a very physical process, a mechanical process. And that's really what my lab is interested in. How do you know mechanical forces affect cells, how they behave, how they change shape, how they grow, how they divide, and, and also how they repair themselves if there is injury. And so we use um, it also help us understand these questions. We, you know, offer experiments, so on. Importantly a really important tool in our lab is to use mathematics to understand these in a more kind of complete holistic way so
0: what give uh, me
1: there? sorry my internet said was unstable yeah, yeah.
0: so what what are the uh, factors cool. in terms of uh, you know organ morphology again embryogenesis or gestation is a very active time then there's some creatures that can regenerate lost limbs you know salamanders things like that and I guess well I mean cancer is probably different but w- what are the morphogenetic events that are important to you in an organism's life
1: yeah so there are there are many so i mean one one hugely important process is really the process of cell proliferation cell division you know, after all most of you know at the very beginning we we're all single cells and so in order to create complex um you know organs complex shape or multicellular systems is the you know the first thing morphogenesis is really how do you grow and then divide yourselves right and and just controlling proliferation rates these growth and division rates is already a very important process to get correct and and you mentioned cancer because of of course when these things don't go uh, aren't correctly controlled you get diseases like cancer where it's basically divisions are out of control and and you know the whole structure loses the shape but but it's not just you know dividing as as a kind of a ball of matter, because, you know, again, at the beginning, uh, most embryos are spherical, but very quickly, they start to adopt different shapes, right? For example, it goes from a sphere to an ellipsoid. So you already have axis elongation and there's already processes there. So for example, one process we looked at in the lab before is the process of orientation of divisions. How do you control how to divide a cell in an oriented way? And what we found is that actually mechanical forces is very important in that. So what is being shown for almost you know, over hundred years ago, now is that cells are when they are elongated, they tend to always divide to bisect the long axis, so that a long cell gives rise to two daughter cells that are more spherical, which you know, which makes sense. But you know, the cell shape is actually very very influenced in mechanical forces, whether it's intrinsic forces in you know, neighboring cells stretching these cells. Or, you know, the cell growth and, you know, the material properties of the cells are isotropic. So, for example, if the cell has stiff ends, then like an elongated balloon, when it's growing, it won't grow as a sphere. It will grow as a, you know, shape. And then when it's about to divide, it will orient its divisions in, in this, you know, along this elongation axis. So that's another key step, orientation of divisions. But also another very important process, and for example, just the simple process of elongation of a whole tissue is what was known as cell intercalations. So for example, cells, they can stick together, but they can also change neighbors. So, you know, let's say between a group of 10 cells, if we start to rearrange ourselves, we could reshuffle and shuffle our position so that instead of, you know, let's say 10 by 10 row, I end up being, you know, 20 by, by 5 row of cells, right? Then, then you can see how that geometry is really changed from sort of spherical isometric shape to, to an elongated shape.
0: What do you think is the cell-to-cell signaling that governs morphology? Like, you know, again, if we look at it and uh, like, you know, a liver, a liver can regrow, right? Well, you know, mm, have you or sure. any, anyone observed when a liver is lacerated or part of it's resected, what does the regrowth look like? And what does that tell you about the signaling that could be going on?
1: Yeah, so I, I have to say I'm not liver expert, although I do have a colleague um, and we're actually starting to work together to look a little bit at liver regeneration. So I know a little bit about about liver so so for example in terms of the liver you know depending on the size of the cut whether it's a small cut uh, or a large cut you, you obviously damage different cell types so the liver has you know a different cell types such as hepatocytes or the ductal cells you know the chalandrocytes and so on and so from what i understand is that if it's a small cut generally the hepatocytes will just you know proliferate and and um, heal that small missing part of the tissue
0: before we continue the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests transcripts of podcasts you're interested in the ability to request specific topics or guests and more visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today now back to the show
1: But if you have a very big Kind of um you know huge cut, let's say almost half the liver is gone, and amazingly the liver will be able to regrow even you know if half of it is is removed, and then what happens is these cells have to de differentiate so this is you know not a mechanical problem, although we are uh, in this new project trying to understand the mechanics of of potentially this this behavior and I can tell you is often these hepatocytes they will de-differentiate to become what's known as a more progenitor-like state so that they're more stem cell-like in a way and then these cells will proliferate better because when they're more progenitor-like they can divide more um, so again going back to you know the earlier question the first thing is they have to build up their cell number right they have to increase cell number dramatically and then when they sort of have overcome that lost cell cell mass then they start to differentiate again into whether it's hepatocytes or chalandrocytes or ductal cells uh, and, and start morphogenesis, for example, forming the bile, connect, you know, so that they can undergo the correct functions, bile formation, and so on. And so one interesting aspect, of course, is, um, again, you know, during, it's been shown that so the liver seems to have different mechanical properties. So, for example, the cells seem to have different tensile states, depending on whether it's in a more progenitor like state or in a more kind of mature, you know, hepatocyte-like state. And what we're looking into is how... How does the kind of mechanical properties of the cells, for example, how stiff they are, or how much tension you know they're pulling on each other, how can that actually affect its ability to regenerate? Because of it's being shown in disease conditions where right? a lot of liver disease uh, extremes, you know, fibrosis, cirrhosis, so on, they then actually are less regenerative, and so that's why we're thinking perhaps you know the stiffness of the cells and their ability to sort of apply tension to each other to move to induce. For example, cell proliferation and a new concept that we we sort of looked into in the lab is the concept of tissue fluidity. So the ability of cells to move and intercalate relative to each other; these could also all contribute to helping you know, how a tissue is able to repair itself. I mean, I'm not saying this is being all shown in the liver. What I'm saying is these are concepts that you know are sort of known in other tissues and other animal species, but potentially they may also work in the liver because you were you know raising liver as as a sort of interesting organ.
0: Has anyone observed, let's say, just cell division? You know, either in bacteria or somatic cells, and you know, every every few seconds, let's say, query the tensile strength of the cell membrane? Can you, can you do such a thing? And if so, what's been observed over a period of time? Or again, in embryogenesis, I don't know, for a mouse or whatever model you can yeah. use, or Drosophila, can you yeah, evaluate so, that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so in different you know model systems, whether it's cell culture, obviously it's been easy in cell culture. So for example, people have used like HeLa cells and measured, for example, the forces the cells can generate when it's, you know, dividing under the mitosis, often there's a drastic uh, cell rounding. So that in itself, cell division itself is a huge, you know, mechanical process, morphological process, because the cells have to change shape. They have to get round, have to get bigger for the apparatus to, you know, for the cell division apparatus, you know, to, to build. And so, so yes, people have measured, you know, forces that, you know, a cell can exert during these, these different times. And, um, and most of being in cell culture, including, you know, cancer cells, wild-type cell lines. And often it's been shown that cancer cell lines are actually able to resist, you know, and, and push harder so that they can sort of grow and divide more and better than its neighbors in the compressed kind of environment. But also in, in for example, the desophilary the, the, the wing disc, which we've been you know, looking at, it's a more complex you know, in vivo system, of course. You know, it's multicellular tissue. You could argue that's more, you know, physiological, more like how real organisms grow and develop. And and in those systems, we've been, for example, to carry out live imaging where we can, you know, image the, the tissue, grow and divide from very small um, stage, you know, only so a few hundred cells and up to, you know, 100,000 cells or so. And, you know, we can track that process.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
1: for a few you know, a few hours at a time to look at how, how the cells are growing and dividing. And we've been able to perform experiments such as laser ablation, which is basically you use the laser like a pair of scissors and you can cut on the cell membranes or the cell kind of junctions and use this to evaluate the tensile forces in the tissue. So the idea there is imagine the cells are all connected like, like a network, like a web. And if you use a you know, scissors to cut this web, If the web is under a lot of tension, then you will see the web recoiling, right, bouncing back. And so we can use these sort of very high-powered lasers, but very sharply controlled uh, localization, um, very precise localization of these lasers to make cuts in cells at different times, for example, when it's dividing or when it's growing or when it's undergoing different types of cell movements to understand what the forces are at the kind of cell membrane level.
0: What makes the forces arise, though? What governs the uh, tensegrity of, you know, the cell membrane in a particular place? What modulates it?
1: Yeah, great question. So there's um, a whole class of molecules collectively known as the cytoskeleton. So in its simplest term, for example, what's kind of dominant in most cells is this network known as actin-Nelson. So actin is basically kind of a mesh mesh, uh, of polymers. And well, when I say mesh, basically actin can organize into different types of structures. And these sort of tertiary structures will detect often the shape of the cell. But another molecule known as non-muscle myosin 2. So a bit like, you know, mu- muscle myosin that we all know of. These myosins are motor molecules. They can cause contraction of so these actin fibers sliding against each other, a bit like, you know, muscles are able to slide and contract. So imagine that kind of a network but around cells. So, so basically you have this kind of, think of it as like a meshwork that's able to contract and expand depending on how many mo- molecules of myosin you have and where the myosin is localized. So for example, if the myosin is more of it on the right half of a the cell, then this half of the cell will contract more, right? And the cell is will, the will be small mobile? on one side.
0: Is the myosin captivated by particular parts of the cell? Is it mobile or what is it, it attached is- to if it? it stay oh, in the yes. same place?
1: Yeah, so the myosin is mobile, so there are also cytoplasmic sort of pools of myosin that can flow around the cell. But what attaches these mo- is basically the actin binding. So the binding of the actin, the affinity of the myosin to the actin, will cause it to first of all to localize to, to the actin. But then also there are other molecules you know, upstream that will control, for example, the activity of the myosin, how how much phosphorylation it is. There's Other kind of regulatory chains of the milestone that will activate it, which will cause motion and then contraction. So, so absolutely. So there's a lot of signaling pathways and sort of biochemical signaling pathways that will lead to the downstream activation of this mocelin. And as a result, this will generate forces in different cells, different locations at different times. So then you can imagine this control will, you know, give you really dynamic kind of emergent behavior. Of the whole tissue,
0: of the whole system, basically. um, Has anyone? I don't know. This this probably be very hard to do. Can you put in fluorescent dye markers or some kind of marker, and then observe, you know, in vivo in a live cell, the structure of the interior of the cell changing, you know, the the migration of myosin, the the stiffening and relaxing, and the maybe even the porting of various chemicals throughout different parts of the cell. I would think that this this physical network pushes and pulls and moves all kinds of materials throughout the cell.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's something that's really, you know, technology has changed so much over the last even just five years. You know, we, we are able to either through dyes or through generating fluorescent proteins. So tagging, for example, GFPs, RFPs, different color fluorescent proteins onto different molecules or proteins of interest. For so example, we could, you know, tag the myosin with GFP, which we use in the lab. And at the same time, tag actin with, you know, red fluorescent marker. And simultaneously, we have a blue fluorescent protein that we can use to mark, you know, another whatever molecule of interest that we're looking at, you know, at the same time. And then we can then image this whole cell at very high, you know, subcellular as it's growing, as it's dividing within a whole tissue even or you know in a single cell kind of context you know in, in a dish. But what's challenging now is really trying to understand subcellular detail. For example, as you said, how do these different you know, pools of actin mouse and how do they move dynam- dynamically, how do they you know, change shape of the cell while the whole cell is still embedded within the whole complex tissue where there are hundreds and thousands of other cells. And, and so so exactly technology is, is really amazing now, allowing us to use different types of dyes or fluorescent protein technology. Where we can then image a lot of these processes you know, all together in its physiological tissue context, and that's super exciting right now.
0: Well, what's been observed so far? Like again, has anyone done a study of a cell dividing, or um, I don't know, tensegrity changing in a tissue over time as it, uh, you know, the liver before and after a meal, it, it changing and moving, like. In what modeling, what modeling have you been able to do and what's been observed so far?
1: Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, lots and lots observed so far. So for example, I can, you know, give you a, a little story that we, we looked at in, in our lab um, with regards to combining computation modeling and imaging. Okay. Observe that um, a different, uh, you know, what, what we were interested in is basically, you know, what polarity of forces, how do polarity of forces within a cell, um, how is that able to orient cell divisions, which we know actually gives rise to, for example, the typical elongated shape of the wing. So if you look at most insect wings, they have a long axis and a short axis, right? So our question then was, how does the wing get get us this shape? And we know it's because the cell divisions are oriented in a particular way. So then we asked, well, how do these divisions orient themselves, right? And so then, cut long story short, we were able to observe through imaging, for example, tagging fluorescent marcin, Able to show that the myosin actually is is polarized. By that I mean the myosin is not everywhere around the cell, but it's only on sort of two sides of the cell. And so as a result, these two sides of the cell they you know they have different tensile forces compared to the other cells. And this is what gives rise to the cell's anisotropy. So then when it grows, it doesn't grow grow kind of into a, a circle, but it grows into oval shape and elongated shape. And then when the cell then divides it follows the long shape axis rule and divides in elongated way and mm-hmm. also as a result we were able to show that computationally so when we were looking at this you know using a model so a lot of people were skeptical so well how do you know this mouse and this you know this atypical mouse and called dax you know how do you know it's not directly for example doing something else you know it's not to the forces perhaps it's binding to spindles and you know tethering completely different kind of subdivision mechanism right and so the, the path of the computational models and mathematical models is that you can really control what you put in, because after all, the whole tissue, the whole wing, all of these other factors could be playing a role. And you can never be sure, oh, it's only the forces that's driving this behavior. Right. And not something else this these molecules could be doing. And of course, many molecules have multiple functions. And so it is very hard to say it never does something else, right? Um, because you know it's very hard to prove it doesn't do something in in, in reality. So the the kind of mathematical models that we build, um, the the importance of them is then we can use the models. For example, in the, if in the model we only had forces and we didn't have anything else, right? And the models were able to explain most of the phenotypes we see in vivo, then we can say actually in this case, for example, the polarity of these mechanical forces actually you know, is a really dominant driving force in the behavior that we observe, which is, in this case, helping the wing orient its divisions and therefore control its size and, and shape.
0: Well, have you tried to make uh, organoids and then put them in culture with in a constrained mold of, let's say, a strange shape? and see what happens you know what kind of shapes do they make the cells
1: yeah so we haven't yet ourselves although we are starting to you know to use sort of organoids or 3d spheroids as such and change its mechanical environment not just the shape but also the kind of the stiffness of the gels that it grows in in order to see if we can control the kind of morphology of the whole organoid you know and and its future behaviors but others, others have done that in some different, different some complexities, whether it's in 3D or, or even just 2D micropatterning, where you know, you're know you plating cells on a 2D kind of um, con- constrained or confined space and then look at how the cells grow and so on. But I think, it's, as you said, it's, of course, much more interesting in 3D. So just Lutov's lab, they, what they've done is, is started to grow intestinal organoids in some sort of different confined spaces. So for example, they sort of 3D micropattern gels that already have the curvature of you know the gut villi and so on and then they plate the cells on and let it grow and of course you know from it's behaves much more like a, a like a mini gut than and then a blob of cells in, in the dish and so again i think with this type of technology one can start to ask you know much more interesting questions like these you know, how does the the shape of the environment but not just the shape you know, after all, I think the, the environment is more than just a scaffold. You know, it's more than just a you know barrier or a shell, but it can have much more kind of long term, you know, interesting consequences. For example, if you had the barrier temp- temporarily and then you took it away, you know, what happens yeah. then? You know, does the cell do the cells just kind of bulge out again, or do they somehow remember that that past? You know, that history, that kind of mechanical compression or, or confinement that they had before? These questions, I think, become much more interesting than just you know, growing a square organics, for example. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. So what, what experimentation is, uh, is happening right now? What specifically are you trying out to figure out?
1: So, so one thing we're following up very much is regarding tissue fluidity. And so what I mean by tissue fluidity is basically the ability of cells to move relative to each other. So normally, if you think of uh, so the solid tissue, The cells are always pretty much stuck to their to the neighbors and there's not much movement, you know, at least during adult adult life. But occasionally, sometimes what we found is that actually upon injury. So if there's a there's a wound or lesion, then the cells around the wound start to move relative to each other and become what we call more fluid. So think of, you know, it's like water. Therefore, therefore, these cells are able to flow into the gap, you know, to seal the gap. And I think this makes a lot more lot of sense because basically, if you're a liquid, you take on the shape of your container, the back, you know the the space that you're in. And so, if there's a hole because of the wound, then these cells literally flow into the hole to seal up. So this was actually a new kind of observation that we made with respect to wound healing, where where this concept of tissue fluidity which was you know not new but applied to wound healing what is new that we discovered a few years ago and so we're very much excited by this kind of mechanism by this principle and so that was found in in the wing disc in drosophila but now we're trying to see if this principle is also true in other tissues for example you mentioned the liver and and you know also let's say the kind of the different organoids different mammalian epithelia and such as the, the lungs and so on, where you know, often there are mechanical lesions and damages, and so we 're very much excited by sort of different experiments where we can test this concept of tissue fluidity. you know if we make a hole in the liver organoid, do the cells actually start to move more relative to each other to flow into into the wound, and how do they actually control this if it is true
0: in Drosophila I mean is it possible to look at uh, what 's happening gestationally, like how long is there gestation and you know even in vitro can you make an artificial i don't know drosophila you know or environment for the uh, the cells to differentiate and grow that approximates what actually happened
1: so so like I, if guess, it, if fly, if fly I guess
0: like egg, right so they're i guess
1: i mean the i mean the fly the whole life cycle you know is only 10 days so and also the embryo itself is already very amenable to for example imaging and manipulations and so on so i guess there's not much of a need to try to artificially make it because it's already so good at you know doing it itself and and we can access it quite well and image it quite well so so you could say that maybe this although although I mean apparently actually I think um, there are some groups that are trying to make a synthetic fly embryo you know and no, let's see because
0: be i guess if you could uh yeah. tag you know the first uh, you know i guess flies have zygotes but you know the first uh yeah the first the initial zygote the initial cell that would make up the whole fly and then watch it through gestation and see where the original cell goes does it die off yeah, pretty I mean, it I mean, become part of the body
1: yeah know? yeah people do people are doing are able to do that already you know so we we let's say labs um, many labs such as V shells's lab and, and and so on are, are you know and because the imaging is so powerful now. You can really do total imaging of the whole initial embryo. Where so the fly embryo is kind of like a syncytium. So it's it's, it's a single cell at the beginning, but then there's lots of cell divisions that will happen in it. There's cellularization, and so people people have have made some amazing movies to really understand these early stages and then actually be able to image the whole kind of uh, embryogenesis process. Um, and it's you know which takes about a day or so. So it's it's um in terms of its kind of time scale and and the size well, of the have you seen the...
0: these? Have you seen these? And if so, what does it tell you? Like what interesting things have you seen? Have you looked at one of these like, you know, home fly movies?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't want to sort of pretend that I'm an expert on fly embryogenesis because because I'm not, but many labs are looking at this and there are some amazing movies, you know, on on YouTube and of course in many published. um, But again, with with your
0: specific, with your specific eye and your specific experimentation, what do you see? Because you're looking at you're thinking about morphogenesis all the time, you know. So
1: yeah, yeah. So so for 30, example, but
0: when you what do you see that's inter- what jumps out at you when you look? Yeah,
1: yeah. So so maybe not at at me, but but even when I look at it. But again, you know, people who've looked in this field. In fact, the fly embryo has been a great model to look at tissue mechanics and morphogenesis because of the fact that it's so easy to to image these cells. The cells are very big, and using the fluorescent markers, you know, we mentioned earlier. People have seen, for example, the cells, individual cells, how they can exchange neighbors. So there's this process called germ band extension, where the process of cell intercalation, which is neighborhood exchanges that I discussed earlier in this kind of tissue fluidity concept, where really the whole the kind of molecular and physical mechanisms of how cells exchange neighbors, undergo, you know, these exchanges and, and elongate the whole kind of tissue axis, all of that work was actually understood. Using the fly embryo as as a model, because again, let's say the first time anyone looked at these movies and saw these processes happening, you're like, just you know, it's it's incredible. Wow, you know, you see these cells change shape. There are certain junctions that shrink more than other junctions, and then they noticed there's, for example, this myosin two that's localized just at those shrinking junctions, and so they were able to conclude that this myosin is really required for the contraction of these shortened junctions. But then these junctions are only shortening in, for example, the, the vertical junctions and not the horizontal junctions, you know, so then as a result, everything is polarised. So you have collective shortening in one axis and then elongation in another axis, you know, all of these. In fact, I think in our field, what we often do is basically we, when we don't know anything yet, we make a movie. <laughs> we, we just, you know, see what we can see. Seeing is believing. And, and then by detailed analysis of this movie, whether it's you know, the cell shape changes the cell size changes, the cell movements—you know—all of these morphometrics that we call from that often that's you know the most revealing, and really that starts us sort of generating different hypotheses regarding what's happening, and then we can zoom in further. And then we can start saying, well, what are the molecules required? You know, are there any molecules? You know, in order for this to happen, these you know cells or these junctions must have higher tension than these ones. You know, if so. You know, we can measure this tensile forces using for example laser ablation but even then you know we can ask well what molecule is responsible then we can start you know looking through the tad library so for example again flies is great because almost all the genes are tagged with GFP now and so we can screen you know hundreds and thousands of different fly lines to look for the, for the you know gene that's exactly localized in the pattern we think it should be in order to carry these forces for example and and, and you know that's often how you know, new new mechanisms are discovered and that's what the fly is great for because you can really cut on you know carry out sort of unbiased you know open-minded genetic screens for example if you really didn't have a clue at the beginning you know how anything is working then you can really make these observations and screens and so on
0: okay are there any particular clinical outcomes that you think your study would be useful for
1: So, yes, absolutely. So, for example, the wound healing stuff, we're saying, you know, so this concept of tissue fluidization, so we we were able to show, you know, at least genetically, uh, we were able to actually make, again, the wing disc for now, but we're testing in mammalian tissues. We were able to genetically make the tissue more fluid. And as a result, the wound in the the fly was able to heal twice the speed of a normal wound, which we think is pretty incredible. So now we're trying to to test, you know, sort of... um, molecular compounds or, you know, other, you know, drug targets and so on that would also have the same effect. In different epithelia, of course, you know, more relevant to human health. So different mammalian epithelia, human epithelia, well, well, not just the what, skin, why do you think the, the lung, uh, the gut.
0: What, why do you think that the fly's wound healed so much faster? What was it that you think did it? Like, what yes, was, you so, know, so, how did the uh, cells move differently versus the way yes, they normally
1: move? Yes, exactly. So so basically, we know exactly what happened. So the wild-type wing, you know, is pretty good at doing it. Uh, it takes about two hours, two to three hours, depending on the size of the wound. But what we did is we we knocked down genetically this milestone regulator or, or, well, basically we, so this milestone that we were talking about earlier, um, which normally sets the tensile state of the tissue. We reduce that slightly in the tissue so that it's not as tense. So imagine if you have, again, this network um, web analogy, if, if all the cells are pulling on each other, really tough, you know, I'm pulling onto you, you're pulling onto me. We're not letting go of each other. Then we're basically like a solid, solid tissue, right? So we, we knock down this activity slightly so that sometimes, you know, I can give, give way to you. Sometimes you can give way to me. And as a result, the cells are jiggling more. They're much more fluid and we, we can see that happening. So the cells, they don't fall apart yet. We haven't knocked down this sort of key protein that much, but we've loosened the tight web is more, you know, jilty if all the cells are moving and wobbling a bit more. And basically we, we reduce the tension in the tissue. So that's the key message. We reduce the tension. And as a result, we made the tissue more fluid. And then when we make the wound, the wound is able to heal in half the time.
0: Well, have you tried to turn the dial to be very loose versus only a little bit loose? And if so, what do you observe?
1: Yeah, so it's sort of hard. It's actually hard to do that, you know, at a very quantitative kind of level. So we we did have some where we went, too extreme so we sort of loosened it too much and the cells basically just died the tissue just kind of flopped because again this molecule is required for just the basic you know tensile structure of the tissue and and also again if we knock down the activity very slightly there wasn't really much an effect and and we we couldn't really get a you know a, a kind of a statistically significant change so there is kind of a fine window but i think the system genetically therefore is just not not perfect for looking at these because again you know even every flower has its own kind of noisy, you know even wild type of a noise within you know how well it heals, and so we thought maybe if we can go to a kind of a more quantitative system perhaps you know compounds and drugs and so on they they may help us understand things at a more quantitative level and if we can be more targeted in you know where we affect these pathways upstream that are affecting this kind of tensile state of the tissue then we can perhaps, you know, have more control, which, of course, will be important and necessary if we want to think of this as a therapy. You know, whether, you know, how much you knock down, how much, for example, in terms of a drug or a cream you apply to site. Of course, it will be important exactly how much you apply, you know, the quantity, the area of of application. You know, all of these will be very important. And so one has to really look at this um, in, in a much more quantifiable way, as you said. And I think, um, which is why basically we're starting to use you know, human human epithelia um, that are relevant to to kind of the wound healing model and screen for different drug compounds that may be important for that. But we're very early stages. However, I do think there is very much, you know, a, a huge potential in that.
0: Okay. We're very good. Younglin, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work? Where can they go?
1: So Google my name and, and hopefully most of my papers will be freely accessible. So I've made sure they are they are in open access, but also BioArchive. Pretty much all the papers go on to BioArchive first. And also feel free to email me, you know, look at my website, email me, follow me on Twitter at Yanglin Mao, And yeah, or just drop me an email.
0: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Young Lin, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Pleasure. If you like this podcast